Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Susan Langdon. She is the Executive Director for Toronto Fashion Incubator. How are you doing today, Susan? Good. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today and share a bit about your story and your journey with the with myself and the Empowerography community. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. I know you are an incredibly busy lady, so I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. So let's jump right in, Susan. You are, as I mentioned, the executive director of the nonprofit organization, the Toronto Fashion Incubator. You're the CEO and the COO as well. Those are some pretty big shoes to fill and a hell of a lot of responsibility that comes along with wearing those shoes. How long have you held these roles with TFI? I've been with TFI since 1994. Wow. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about TFI? What is the Toronto Fashion Incubator all about? What's the mission of TFI? Sure thing. The Toronto Fashion Incubator, or TFI, is an award-winning nonprofit organization. We began in 1987, so we've been around for over 30 years. And it was actually started by the City of Toronto back then, believe it or not. And it was established to help the fashion industry create jobs and to perpetuate the industry. Because back in 1987, there was a trend where the industry was downsizing. But at the same time, fashion was the second largest industrial employer in the city. Really? Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. In fact, today, it's still in the top three. We're the third, yeah, top revenue generating industry for the city of Toronto. Holy crow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. 30 plus years, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so... The way that we can help the city Uh deliver its goal to create jobs and sustain the industry is by helping the people who are probably the most vulnerable at not succeeding. And those are the startups. Those are the people who are interested in starting a fashion business, but don't have, you know, business knowledge or they don't understand the business of fashion. Okay. And so really that was our initial mandate, but now 30 years since then, uh-huh. we've, you know, we've now, we now have alumni. We now have people who have been following us for 10, 20, 30 years. Right. And those people are, you know, our former clients, if you uh-huh. want to call them that, they still want us to help them. I mean, you know, every business, especially during the pandemic, everybody has faced significant challenges in the fashion industry. And right. so we've kind of learned to adapt and come up with programs to serve not just the startups, but also those who are mid-sized enterprises as well as okay. some who are more established. Is the focus though mainly or the type of people you get coming to join TFI startups though? Like, I mean, let's say I wanted to start up a fashion line, a clothing line. I join, would I, I would join TFI and I could get mentoring and classes and whatnot. Do you guys also offer grants and things like that to help small startups get a, get started? We, we do have mentoring business mentors. I have 20 plus incredible industry volunteers okay. who give their time to meet with our members one-on-one on mm-hmm. so many different facets of the industry, uh, not just starting a fashion business, but you know, importing fabrics and duties. And we have two lawyers, believe it or not, a chartered accountant to help with business planning. So we have a wonderful team of volunteer mentors. And if I can get a government grant 
that allows us to give out micro grants, then yes, we have done that. But lately, that funding hasn't been available. Right, understandable with all that we've all been going through. And but you guys cover quite a gamut or wide, a wide array of professionals that work and have worked in the fashion industry to help people with the many, many different facets of their of their business. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yes. Can you share a bit with us about what your specific responsibilities are in the multiple roles or hats you wear with TFI? Oh my goodness. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> so a lot of times when people look at TFI, they go to our website or they've heard about it, or they've seen some of the events or projects that we've done. They think I have a team of a hundred, but in reality, there's me and one part-timer. Wow. That's, that's it. Yeah. Because I mean, I used to have a team of five at one point at our, you know, but that it all depends on funding, government funding. And our funding has been steadily decreasing for a number of years. And so in order to basically break even, it's come down to me and one part-timer. Wow. So anything you think about with TFI, like it all rests on me. Yeah. I'm leading it. I'm pushing it. I'm doing everything like I do. Gosh, website updates, fulfilling orders, doing the daily bookkeeping, you know, working with government partners, filling out grant applications, filling out grant reports, dealing with the board, planning for the future, like, you organize you events it. and whatnot too, right? Because TFI puts on monthly events as well, correct? Well, we used to. I mean, okay. we haven't since the pandemic hit. But in the online space, don't you guys still put on online events? We were doing webinars. Okay. But, but they're, they're, I don't know. It's, you know, there's so many people doing webinars now. Mm-hmm. We just, and they're all free naturally. Right, yes. We just don't feel, I, I think that there's just too much out there too much choice Mm -hmm. and so you know the few times we've done webinars sometimes we've had really good results and sometimes it's not so good right and I you know I've spoken with my colleagues in the industry and they say the same thing you know Mm -hmm. initially everybody was so excited to do webinars but now there's so many it's like you know pick and choose yeah, for sure. Well, you, you're shouldering a hell of a lot of responsibility, that's for sure. Now, you're, you're known as a passionate change maker, creative problem solver, motivated by challenges and accomplishments. You have many years of experience in the fashion industry. What inspired or motivated you to pursue a career in fashion to begin with? That began in high school. Okay. I had an amazing home ec teacher, Vera Taylor, in grade 10. Mm-hmm. And part of home ec, we had, there was a sewing portion. Okay. And she saw that my skills were beyond what my peers were mm-hmm. at the time. And so she pulled me aside and she said, look, I don't know what I can teach you because your skills are, you know, better than your classmates. Yeah. How would you like to learn how to pattern make and design your own clothes? And she said, I'll spend time, extra time with you. Uh and show you how to do this so I was thrilled and that's what she did she she mentored me she encouraged me she told me I had talent we you know met after class many times Uh and she showed me how to you know I designed an outfit and made the pattern and sewed it and you know like that's pretty amazing that is for in grade 10 wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's phenomenal yeah, and she really encouraged me to pursue fashion as a career. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where it all began back that's in grade where 10. That's it all began, yes. <laughs> what was your very first job in the fashion industry? I worked for a young woman who was starting up a business. Mm-hmm. She had just graduated from FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, okay. in New York. Mm-hmm. She's Canadian, but she went to FIT and came back to Toronto to launch her business. And I graduated from Ryerson University. And at the end of the year, there's always this big student fashion show. Okay. So apparently this young woman came to see the show because she was looking for talent. She wanted an assistant. Yeah. And I didn't even know this. And then what happened was I, I subscribed to a trade publication called Style Magazine and in they always have news about who's opening, who's closing. And I 
you know, I saw that this new company was opening up. So I wrote, asked, you know, don't forget these, this is a day before email. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I wrote to the company and asked if they were looking for help, uh-huh. got the interview, found out that this young woman was the person who attended my year-end show at Ryerson. Okay. And when I showed her my portfolio, she said that that was the collection that she liked the best. Wow. And that she felt that our aesthetics were very much aligned. Mm-hmm. And she offered me a job on the spot. Wow, that's incredibly high praise. Wow. Yeah, that that must have felt incredible. I didn't know what to expect. I was <laughs> just over the moon. I'm sure you were. So at the end of the year, every every student in your program has to put on a fashion show. It's a group fashion show. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. A school show. Right. Okay. Very cool. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges you faced early on in your career in the fashion industry and how'd you overcome them? You know, I've been pretty lucky working for a lot of women-led businesses. Mm-hmm. And I find female entrepreneurs to be, to have a great deal of empathy and right. understanding. So I really didn't face that many challenges okay. other than, let's say, working incredibly long hours. Yeah. That to me is, is sort of a given, you know, like fashion yeah. is not a nine to five job, but the one situation that came to mind was when I when I had to fight for financial backing uh-huh. from finance from an angel investor. Okay. So I was working for a company that was already backing a designer, right, with an established collection, and I had heard it was a family-owned business, and you know, mother and the son mostly ran it. Okay. And I heard that they were interested in launching an evening wear division. So I went to the Sun and I pitched the idea of uh-huh. me launching that label and explaining that it had so many years of experience behind me. Uh-huh. Also, the fact that the lead designer, she had been on mat leave a couple right. times and I filled in for her. Okay. So, you know, I thought that I made a really good pitch and then... The son came to me about a week later and told me that uh-huh. he was hiring my assistant. So I was the assistant to the designer. Yeah. And I had an assistant who wow. was this young guy from college. And he told me that he was giving the job to my assistant. And I asked why that uh-huh. was happening. Uh-huh. And he said that the head designer told him that the young guy was more qualified or was a better designer than me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> the devil wears Prada. <laughs> no, this is true. So the son, I knew that he was an actuary by trade. Okay. You know, dealing with figures and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So what I did was I went back to find all the, what we call cutting tickets these are orders that went into production. Okay. So I, I pulled out all the cutting tickets from when the head designer was on mat leave twice uh-huh. and, and added up all the sales and how much I brought into the company. Cause these were my designs. Yeah. And when I put it all out on a spreadsheet and had the proof, I showed the son, the cutting tickets uh-huh. and the spreadsheet. He couldn't deny it. Yeah, it's proof right there. He's a black and white figures guy. That's right. That's right. And he, you know, he went to the head designer and said, look at this is proof. Yeah. And she tried to talk him out of it, Mm -hmm. but he gave me the job. That's amazing. He decided he would back me. The fact that you had the the wherewithal to go and, and, and do that and say, hey, listen, I'm just as, if not more, I am more qualified than this guy. Here are the facts in black and white. You cannot dispute them. And he backed you on that. I think that's amazing. So really, I mean, he was just the messenger from the head designer, but at least he had your back and, and he got you in there. Yeah. That's he couldn't phenomenal. dispute it. Yeah, that's right. And how long did you end up working there? Well, I had he, the, so the company backed my line for five years Okay, from that point. And what was your line called? It was called Zakura, Z-A-K-U-R-A, 
which is kind of hints at my Japanese background. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about the line and where it was available and how that all, what all happened with that? Well, just to let you know, so I I did confront the head designer, by the way. (laughs) Oh, did you? Oh, of course. I love it. No, I did. You're no no shrinking violet. I love it. (laughs) No, I kind of stormed into her office. Yeah. Threw the spreadsheet down. Yeah. And called her out on it. And it... (laughs) And it turns out that she didn't want to lose me as an assistant because I was making her life and her job that much easier. Ah, there we go. <laughs> but that was the motivation. Yeah. But anyway, so the the son said, okay, look, we want to launch the sign mm-hmm. for the holiday season. You've got 30 days. 30 okay. days to come up with a 30-look evening wear collection, starting from scratch, a pencil and a piece of paper, because the head designer would not let me borrow any of the, what we call blocks, like the, how can I explain? They're like the basic pattern from which all styles are drafted from. Okay. okay. They're like the building blocks. Yep. So I had to draft, well, I, it was easy because I drafted those blocks anyway, but- right. Still, it's a lot of work to start from scratch. I did it, worked night and day. And in my very first season uh-huh. with my collection, we did a 500,000 in wholesale. Holy shit. Yep. In Your 30 very days. first go at it. Holy yep. 500,000 Canadian that, wholesale. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And so it was customers. We had customers like Hope Renfrew, Eaton's at the time, Breton's. A lot of these stores don't exist anymore. Right. But, uh, we had Lipton's. Eventually we sold to Saks. Wow. Um, yeah. Brown's in the UK. That's so, a huge feather in your cap. That's amazing. For your first yeah. go around too. Yeah. I know. Phenomenal. Yeah. It surpassed everybody's expectations. That's that's, sure. That must have been such an incredible feeling though. It was. It was incredible because, you know, definitely I showed the, the head designer. Yes. He was wrong. And I yeah. showed the one that he was wrong. Yep. I love it. I love that. The underdog shows people, you know, like these people didn't believe in you, didn't support what you wanted to do. And here you have it. Look at how your first go, go around does with your very first line. That's phenomenal. What a story. <laughs> I love it. I think it's amazing. Well, thank you. What inspires you most about working in the fashion world? I think it, it's the fast pace of fashion. It changes every day, every season, every year. You know, you can't, what's good today, maybe out tomorrow. Right. So it really just kind of forces you to always, you know, have a finger on the pulse, uh-huh. keep an eye out for what's happening, what trends are coming in, what's going out, and to adapt to that. Yeah. You know, what would you say is your favorite part of your job at TFI? What lights you up the most about that? I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. (laughs) I I really don't like working within a box frame. And what I really love about TFI is that the board has, I mean, and I've proven it. It's only because I've proven my ability to them. Right. But they give me a lot of rain. You know, I come up with ideas. I, you know, I try to improve programs. I I initiate projects. And that freedom, that sense of independence, that's very important to me. Mm -hmm. And I like to be able to use, even though I'm not designing now, I like to use my creativity into coming up with these new ideas and figuring out a way to make them work. Right. That's what really, what I enjoy most, I think, about this job. Mm -hmm. Do you miss designing at all? Because you just, you said you're not designing anymore. Do you ever miss that? You know what? For the first six months after being at TFI, I missed it so bad. I mean, I would watch the designers have fabric appointments. And initially I would ask to sit in (laughs) and I would looking at these fabrics. I just wanted to reach over and touch the fabric. (laughs) And all these ideas are popping in my head. But no, I refrained myself. I didn't touch them, but it was killing me. Yeah. 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 You know, but I I realized I'm in a different position now. Uh And now I just don't have time. Right. I don't even have time to do my own alterations. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
what were you doing or where were you working before you joined TFI and how did the whole opportunity open up for you with them? Okay, let me think. So back in 1993, my backers decided that they were going to pull out because I don't know if you were around or if you remember, but 92-93, Canada was in a really bad recession. Yes. Interest rates were double digits. Oh, yeah. Like 20, 25, 28%. They were oh, crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Mortgage rates were even like 23%. Yeah. People were walking away from their properties. Yeah. You know, because anyway, it was a very, very bad time. And so people were losing their jobs. There were no more black tie galas and therefore people don't need evening wear. Right. So our sales started dropping off and eventually the backers said, look, if you want to carry on, you can buy out the name, you can carry forward, but it's going to cost you X number of millions of dollars, which I didn't have. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we both kind of walked away from that. And uh-huh. I ended up teaching part-time at Ryerson uh-huh. and running You know, I I had my own small business on the side. I was doing some contract designing for other companies. Okay. But I was teaching part-time at Ryerson, the fourth-year design program. And when you're a part-timer, you have to be assessed by a full-time tenured faculty. And I was approached by uh, the chair of the program, Sheila Stewart, who said that she was going to be my evaluator in class one day. So... That was all fine. At the end of the class, she said, she came up to me and said, you know, I really like your teaching style and you know so much about the industry. It's clear. Have you heard of something called the Toronto Fashion Incubator? And I said, well, yes. And very strangely, I wrote to them about six months ago and offered my services as a volunteer to mentor the designers because I had just seen the incubators group show at Toronto Fashion Week. And like I, at this point, you know, I'm just having this confidential conversation with Sheila. And I said, and honestly, Sheila, it was dreadful. Like it was <laughs> really, it was cringeworthy. Yeah. And I, you know, this is a debut, like their first professional debut for these designers. And they need someone to help them better prepare for that show. Mm-hmm. And I said, but you know what? Nobody wrote back. It's been six months and nobody's written back. So I guess they're not interested. So she says, well, she started laughing. She says, well, guess what? I'm the volunteer chair and president of the Toronto (laughs) Fashion Incubator. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just about died. And she said, and I'm really sorry that no one's written back to you, but it's because we don't have an executive director at the moment. Right. And so I've been kind of filling in, going in, trying to, you know, watch over things or paying the bills, but we're looking for an executive director. And, you know, we have tried to find people, but they're just not the right fit. Would you be interested in in applying? And I said, well, yeah, sure. I said, you know what? I really don't know much about running a nonprofit. (laughs) I've never run one before, but I also just want to let you know, Sheila, that I've applied for a grant from the Matinee Fashion Foundation, which sadly no longer exists. But the grant is to help take a fashion business to the next level. So it's a big chunk of money. Yeah. And Ryerson had also approached me about being a full-time tenured professor. Wow. So she said, that's okay. I understand. You know, you have to put your feelers out there, but just give me a resume and, you know, let me pitch it. So I got, you know, she asked me to come in for an interview. It was at City Hall. There are like 20 people around this huge boardroom. Oh, wow. Talk about intimidating. Very intimidating. But I guess I did well. And they offered me the position. And this was February 1994. And you know what? I got home. I was, was thrilled. But then I received a letter in the mail saying that I received the Matinee Fashion Foundation grant. Oh, my gosh. The same day. <laughs> I know. And on top of that, Ryerson said, look, you know, we've we've got this opening for you. So I had these three incredible opportunities, kind of life changing opportunities. One is a grant to take my business to the next level. Yeah. One is to run a nonprofit. One is to teach at Ryerson full time. And so, you know, it was a very difficult decision. And so what I did was I called three of my friends 
in the fashion business mm-hmm. and ask them for their opinion. People that I trusted. Right. So I called up Joyce and Judy at Comregs and I asked them, what did they think of TFI? And they said, well, you know, it's a good idea, but it's so poorly run. And they just let anybody in there. And it's supposed to be the center of excellence. But you saw the, the, the show at Toronto Fashion Week. And, you know, we don't really need to say much more. Right. And all of that is true. All of that was true. Uh-huh. Then I spoke with Brian Bailey and I asked his opinion. And he said, yeah, all of that is valid. All of that is true. But, you know, it is a good idea. But it's, you know, it's lacking direction. Yeah. So finally, I called up Lita Bidet and I asked Lita and she said the same thing. You know what? (laughs) All of that is true, Susan. But if anybody can turn this around, it's you. And that that was it. That was was it. That was the decision because, as you say, I'm motivated by challenges. Yes. And I'm a creative problem solver. And it was a challenge that just intrigued me. I can't even imagine how hard that decision must have been, though. I mean, to have all those options thrown at you and open to you. I mean, you could have taken your business to the next level. Like, Do you ever look back and think man, I wonder if, what would have happened if I had done this or I wonder what would have happened if I had taken the position at Ryerson or do you just go forward and you just in the moment with, with TFI? No, I really believe this was the right decision yeah. for me. Now, you've been recognized for your work and achievements in the fashion industry with awards, etc. What do all these accolades and awards mean to you? Well, first of all, I'm so grateful and it's amazing to be recognized. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a form of validation. It's uh-huh. It's nice to be for people to recognize your work uh-huh. and and to receive an award for the work you passionately love to do makes it even better. Right. I think it's very meaningful to me because, you know, growing up in an Asian family, <laughs> Asian parents are not, at least mine anyway, they, they were not the type to dish out praise. I would say almost never. <laughs> wow. I remember my mother always saying, oh, look at aunt so-and-so praising your cousin so-and-so. You know, that's disgusting how she always goes on and on and on. About <laughs> oh my God. I know. But, you know, and then so I'm kind of like, well, I kind of would like some of I, that. Yeah. I would like a little bit of praise. <laughs> yes, you know? of course. I mean, I was always a good student. I always got A plus and, mm. you know, all my in public school and high school. So because I never really got it from home, I think it, it just, it's something that I, I really feel that I want. Yeah. You know, and it's much more meaningful. Yeah. That's understandable for sure. Mm-hmm. So of all these awards and recognition you've received, which one are you most proud of? Or is there one that means the most here that really stands out and holds special meaning for you? Yes. It's the order of Canada, which I, wow, that's a huge one. <laughs> yes. I was awarded the order of Canada in December 31st, 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. And that means so much to me because, well, on so many things, I mean, it's the country's second highest civilian honor. Yeah. I think the first honor is an award of bravery of some sort. But also, I mean, I'm a third generation Canadian. Uh I'm a racialized woman. You know, to receive this honor from the country I love. Yeah. It's incredible. I I couldn't even imagine (laughs) how that must feel. Yeah. And I actually remember when it first came out, which I think is 1967, our centennial year, because I remember, even though I was a child then, I remember my mother telling me about this new honor that Canada was creating. And wouldn't it be incredible if someone who was Japanese Canadian could ever win that award, which at the time she felt was impossible. So in a way, you know, I remember thinking to myself, wow, wouldn't that be incredible? I didn't know what it was. Right. And I didn't know what you had to do to get it. But I just remember thinking what an honor that would be and how happy I would make my mother if I were to receive the Order of Canada. 
And here we are. You've received it. That's so phenomenal. Wow. That's just mind-blowing. I love that. What an amazing story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And my mother actually said she was proud of me. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There's your praise. (laughs) Susan, I'm curious. You had mentioned that the fashion industry is predominantly, you've you've worked with a lot of women. Um, in your career through fashion. What are your thoughts on the landscape of entrepreneurship and business and women run businesses? Are you seeing or have you seen a shift in terms of more women making the jump into entrepreneurship? And if so, why do you think that is? It's funny because fashion is and has always been very female dominated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably in the last 20 years where you've seen more men enter the field. Okay. I'm um, not talking about the owners because obviously you need money to start a fashion business. So mm-hmm. for example, in my case, when I was a designer, the owner of the company that backed me, you know, there was a patriarch right. who was kind of funding it all. Right. But I, you know, I do, I do find that there are still a lot of women leading businesses in fashion. We did a survey mm-hmm. in July last year, actually, to mm-hmm. our let's say 10,000 email subscribers right. and 82% ident- self-identified as female led wow. businesses. That yeah. is huge. Yeah. That huge. is phenomenal. Cause I mean, I've read recently that there has been a, a, quite an increase in women moving into the entrepreneurial space, but also that women were the hardest hit during the pandemic in terms of financial and job loss. Yes. Yes, I've read that too, because a lot of, you know, they've had to take, uh, put their families first. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. 82%. That's amazing. I think, I mean, and that's just the fashion industry. I mean, I think there are still a lot of strides to be made in terms of women moving into more positions of power within, we'll call it corporate America, I guess. But at least where the steps are being taken and being made to move towards that, which is great to see. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's amazing. To date, Susan, what would you say is your biggest high or your greatest win? Gosh, I don't know. Definitely winning over that angel investor and fighting mm-hmm. for my, my line <laughs> and generating 500000 my first season. That was a huge win. Yeah. Huge, huge win. That It's either that or it's, you know something recently that I launched called showroom Canada Okay. due to the pandemic, which basically canceled out all international travel and in-person showroom appointments. I came up with this idea to create a digital showroom for Canadian brands to present their lines to retail buyers. Okay. And I did a lot of research. I managed to get a government grant to launch it. We called it Showroom Canada. And it launched February 16th and ran for six weeks, which is sort of the typical fashion buying season. Okay. And when I applied for the grant, I had to basically put my neck on the line and say X number of sales were going to be generated, X number of brands, participating brands would make sales. But, you know, that was a bit of a stretch because I'd never launched a digital show before (laughs) in my life. But at the end of six weeks, instead of 15% of the brands making sales, 43% of the brands made sales. Yeah. And almost 1 million Canadian in total. Phenomenal. Wholesale sales from these 43%. You yeah. far exceeded the goals you had set, the, the modest goals you had set. Yes. That is amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it makes me feel wonderful that I've been able to help so many people over the years mm-hmm. become successful. It's actually to help them survive. Yeah. Because a lot of stores were not placing orders. Right. You know, due to the pandemic. That's phenomenal. Just amazing. You are such an inspiration, Susan. Amazing. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? You mean aside from being a cat whisperer? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, aside from being a cat whisperer. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's definitely a superpower. I I don't know. I think think I'm a, a, a really good creative problem solver. If you show me a problem, I'll think of a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G to come up <laughs> with solving that problem. Okay. And a lot of times it works. There you go. 
That's the important part. Yeah. Speaking of success, how do you define the word success? What does that word mean to you personally? It definitely is a personal definition. I think for me, it's, you know, obviously financially being financially comfortable. Yes. But it's also striving for results that surpass even the benchmarks that I've set for myself. Like I'm very competitive. I like to overachieve just the way I am. And I don't want to be average. I don't want to meet average expectations. Yeah. So if I'm able to surpass those average expectations, then that's success. Which you have clear, which you have clearly accomplished numerous times with with things you've done. So kudos to you, and you should be very proud of yourself and what you've accomplished. Thank you. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life, and what was your life like before learning it? What was your life like after learning it? I'm going to say to always expect the unexpected because okay. things can change in an instant. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw that with COVID. Who yeah. thought we would be facing? you know, our version of the Black Plague in our lifetime, in the 21st century. Uh Very true. What would you say is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? This one is easy. My grandfather was always so proud of the fact, this is my paternal grandfather, Uh was always so proud of the fact that my father's family descend from samurai. Okay. And the code of the samurais is loyalty and integrity to well, in those days, it was to the shogun. Yes. But, you know, the takeaway is integrity and loyalty. And he always told me, like, you have to work hard to keep a good name for yourself. Uh-huh. Because once you lose integrity, you're never going to get it back the same way. It's never going to be the same. And that's just been instilled in me since I was a child. Very wise. I think it's a very, yeah, it's a very wise lesson. For sure. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Oh, my goodness. Or a career in the fashion industry, let's say. Yeah, I was going to say, my goodness, you have to be a really good jack of all trades. <laughs> of all trades. I would say it's very important to exercise diplomacy uh-huh. at all times and to think before you act or say something because everybody knows everybody. Uh-huh. And you know, you just, it's just too small of a world to burn bridges. Yeah. It's, you know, another, I guess another piece of advice that I was taught when I was a kid was always to take the higher road, mm-hmm. even if it's a more difficult path, but to always take the higher road. What was a turning point in your life and how did that affect you? This one is a difficult one to talk about. So I hope I can get through it. My father was out walking the dog one day and was hit by a car. Oh my gosh and died instantly. And yeah, I was just a teen at the time. And I'm the middle child, like have an older sister and younger sister. But it was me who answered the door when the policeman arrived. And it was me that my mother asked to join her uh, at the hospital, because I think she's kind of, my parents kind of labeled me as the responsible one, the logical one. Right. So even though I was young, like younger than my older sister, she asked me to go to the hospital with her. A stronger one. Maybe, maybe that's what she saw. Mm-hmm. And then it was also me that had to sit down with my mother and my uncles to discuss my father's estate or situation because he had cashed in his life insurance policy. So there was no life insurance coming in. My mother was only working part-time as an alterationist, we still had a mortgage. Yeah. And there were all these, you know, we had to go through the papers. Like, did he own any, have, take out any loans, you know, because he had this dry cleaning business on Parliament Street. So, you know, being kind of forced into that situation made me realize how important it is to be organized. Like, yeah. as I said, anything can like expect the unexpected. Yeah. So it's forced me to plan. So anything that I do, whether it's at home or at work, there's always a trail. It's always organized. Yeah. If I suddenly weren't there. Someone would be able to figure it out. Yeah. It's yeah. 
That's incredible. Um, thank you so much for sharing that very vulnerable moment and story um, and such an obviously a, a tragic event in your life. I can't even imagine. I mean, I know that when we lose someone, there is a lot of of shit to deal with in terms of the paperwork and all of that stuff that you have dealing with the estate and what needs to be taken care of and what needs to be canceled. And it's a lot. And especially, I mean, to throw that or throw a teenager into that to deal with, I mean, that's just mind boggling to me. I know that's a lot of responsibility put on your head as a teenager. Yeah. I mean, you too, you lost your father. Yes. Yes. Your mother lost her husband. Granted that's, that's a huge loss, but you also lost too. So for you, to have to put all that aside and help deal with this stuff. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was a lot. I'm sure the incredible strength and resiliency you had. And I mean, not being able to grieve properly because you were so consumed by dealing with all this stuff and and being there for your mom. Yep. It was a very difficult chapter. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Susan. That, That means a lot to me that you were shared that vulnerable moment. Thank you. You're welcome. What does the word empowerment mean to you, Susan? I think it's being in a position and having the confidence to make change happen. I love Um, that. Whether it's for yourself or for others. Uh Yeah. I love that, definitely. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three word answer type thing, okay? (laughs) What was your dream job as a child? Secret agent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I love it. How would you describe yourself in one word? Benevolent. Money or fame? Money. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. My mother called me nocturnal as a child. (laughs) What was your very first job? At my dad's dry cleaning store. If you could teach the world one thing. What would that be? Well, this is more than a one word answer. Okay, that's okay. To accept everyone for who they are. Beautiful. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Love. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? I would eliminate greed. Yes, I agree with that one for sure. What's your favorite stress-reducing activity? Bubble baths, cuddling cats, Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Cat whispering. What is I'm one... very good at it, by the way. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I believe you. What is one thing you've always wanted to do in life, but never have? Write a script or a novel. Awesome. Okay, that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> <laughs> Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? I think it's my mother. Definitely my mother. She, you know, obviously she lost a husband. But prior to that, she lost a child. Wow. I had, a, yeah, I had an older brother who was born and died before my sisters and I were born. So we're kind of like a second generation, which is why my mother is actually really old. But I did have an older brother uh-huh. who died of leukemia. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. So she lost a child. She lost her husband. That's she, a lot actually lost a brother who was also struck by a car and oh killed. Oh, gosh. You know, such a rare, bizarre coincidence. No kidding. That's horrible. Yeah. She's been through an awful lot, and yet she is still an optimist. That's amazing. That just is a great testament as to her character and who she is as a person. Yeah. When you're having a bad day, what do you do to make yourself feel better? Oh my goodness. Well, I like listening to music. I'll mm-hmm. put on some crazy happy tunes. Okay. And just kind of take a bubble bath. Beautiful. What would you say are the top three skills needed to be a successful entrepreneur? Number one, be open to learning. Just be open to ideas. Number two, be flexible. Always, you know, be open to a plan A, B, and C. Mm-hmm because you really have to pivot quite quickly sometimes. Uh And then number three is really you need to understand the the business side to, you know, become proficient with accounting and bookkeeping and knowing how your cash flow stands. Uh You can be the most creative fashion designer 
in the world. But if you can't be financially successful, then what point is that? Yeah. You're not going to be in business much longer. Right. Very wise, wise, sage advice. Thank you. <laughs> if you could sit down and have a one hour conversation with anyone alive or dead, who would it be and why? It would be Oprah. I'd love to sit down with Oprah and just ask her. Well, first of all, I'd ask her to be my mentor. <laughs> and I wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, but I'd also want to know, like, how did she move from being an actor and not even like an A-list actor, mm-hmm. like an actor to then having her own TV host show and now being this, you know, queen of the media universe? Yeah, no kidding. I'm fascinated yeah. by that. I'd love, I'd love to know how she did that. What is one of your biggest failures or we'll call it life lessons or teachable moments? And what did you learn from it? Hmm. I have to reflect on another personal uh-huh. situation for okay. this. No matter how much you love your job, it is a job and you're replaceable. People, meaning family, friends, a partner, those really need to come first because they're the ones who will always be there for you. And sadly, I've learned the hard way. When I took the job at TFI, Mm -hmm. I knew it'd be a lot of hard work. Like I said, I'm motivated by challenges. Yes. And therefore, I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work to kind of prove to the industry that this this thing was worthwhile, that it had a point to exist, and that it would require a lot of time and effort to get it there. So I probably put that first in my life. And, you know, that didn't really go over with my my husband at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, when I look back, I think that was a big mistake I made because I'm no longer married. Right. Marriage ended because I did put my work first. It's a hard lesson to learn for sure. It is hard. Thank you again for sharing such a vulnerable moment, Susan. I appreciate that. What is your personal motto? Lead by example. I've always believed in that. If you could set up a billboard anywhere, where would you put it? And what would it say? Where would I put it? Uh Oh my goodness. A billboard anywhere. Gosh. Maybe it would be on a satellite (laughs) that would project project down on earth digitally. And it would say in big capital letters, be kind, period. I love your way of thinking. That's awesome. (laughs) Thinking outside the box there. That's beautiful. Susan, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? How has being a racialized woman affected you? Okay, there you go. How has being a racialized woman affected you? (laughs) Oh, you're asking me now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I I am a third generation Canadian. Mm -hmm. I, I think Canadian. I sound Canadian. My whole life is Canadian. Right. I've never lived anywhere else. And yet, just because I look different, it's created a lot of problems and challenges for me growing up. Because people often just look at the face value of something mm-hmm. and don't look beyond that. And it's like a book by its cover. Yeah. And that's not fair. No. And that's not kind. So it's been difficult in, like I said, not so much in fashion because... Women-led businesses tend to be much more accepting Uh and open. But in other parts, I think, of my life, it's been difficult. And certainly when I deal with established institutions, it's very difficult. For example, I was invited to, I'm not going to name the agency, but it it is a tourism board. So Uh I was invited to a roundtable session brought on by a tourism board that's funded by the government Okay, a number of years ago. And I was, you know, the only visible minority in the room. Uh I don't, I got the feeling that they didn't know that they were (laughs) inviting uh, a visible minority because my name, Susan Langdon doesn't sound Asian at all. Right. Anyway. So the topic that we were going to be talking about was how do we position tourism in Canada to make it sound like, you know, we are welcoming to all different people from all other countries. I don't know who said it, but it was, it wasn't me. And somebody came up with the idea like, oh yeah, let's, let's come up with a slogan and say, 
you know, Canada is tolerant. And everybody's like, yeah, that's great. Tolerant? (laughs) You gotta be kidding me. No. And I voiced up and I said, that is terrible. That is. Tolerant is not accepting. That's right. Tolerant means you'll put up with it. Yes. And I said, look around the room here. I am the only one who's been racialized. You don't know what it's like. Yeah. Believe me, tolerant is not the right (laughs) word. And you know what? I was never invited back. Because you spoke the truth. (laughs) That's insane. Yeah. So how has, for you, dealing with that adversity motivated you and fueled your passion for what you do and and who you are as a person? I think you said it earlier. You use the word underdog, and I mm-hmm. always felt that way because people made me feel that way. People That's a horrible feeling. made me feel like I was not good enough as the white kid sitting beside me in class, even though my marks were better. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and so I've always felt like the underdog. And so, therefore, I always root for the underdog, mm-hmm. you know, which is why I'm a Maple Leafs fan. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. (laughs) Susan, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Be proud of yourself and your accomplishments. Well said, short and to the point, short and sweet. Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Okay. I don't know if this is over 30 seconds or under, but okay. (laughs) Okay. My speech would be, We are all here on earth at this exact moment in time. Tomorrow, next week, maybe in an hour from now, we may not be. Anything can happen in an instant. I know this from my past experience. You know, one minute my dad was making toast and the next minute he was gone. So since our time on earth is so unknown and unpredictable, why can't we all live in peace? Who cares what race you are, what gender, what your religion is? Why does that even matter? Life is truly too short to waste placing judgment on others. Teach your children to be kind, compassionate, and accepting. That's what I would say. Beautiful. I love that. And the passion in your voice. I love it. So amazing. Thank you so much for those incredibly wise words, Susan. And Honestly, your story is one of incredible inspiration with all of the things you've taken on, the adversity you've overcome, and the things you've managed to accomplish, and the recognition you've managed to, to garner for yourself. Being an underdog, as, as we say, you have done amazing, and you are such an incredible inspiration. I truly appreciate you taking the time to be here today and share in your story and journey, and take me on your journey with you. It is absolutely incredible, and I just want to welcome you and say thank you for being part of the Empowerography community and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, honestly, the honor and pleasure is all mine because without women, amazingly inspiring women like yourself, this platform doesn't exist. So I truly appreciate you and appreciate you taking the time. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Susan Langdon. She is the executive director of the Toronto Fashion Incubator based right here in Toronto. Thanks so much, Susan. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thanks, you too, Brad. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.